Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. An explosive event from the days of disco. All of a sudden it was like a sonic boom had gone off. Records were launched 250 feet in the air. A poisonous plot of jealousy and revenge. You broke into the bathroom, and all of a sudden, she collapsed to the floor. And a pioneering woman with a peculiar predicament. It was very frightful for her to think that discrimination could come back. Inside the walls of great institutions lie extraordinary relics, tales of intrigue and wonder, and secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. Established in 1850, Sacramento is the oldest incorporated city in California. And located in a 28-acre historic district is an institution that catalogs its legacy. The Old Sacramento Visitor Center. Its collection includes the shoe of a frontiersman, a leather saddle used by the legendary Pony Express, and navigational equipment that once chartered the rough waters of California's Golden Coast. But one object here provided a more civilized mode of travel. This artifact has four wheels. It stands 10 feet tall, and it was a pretty smooth ride. This is an 1854 Concord stagecoach. And according to author Chris Entz, a carriage just like this one brought two lost souls together before tearing them apart. This is one of the most bizarre romances of the Old West. How did a conquered stagecoach destroy the dreams of a legendary lonely heart? April 1873, Gilroy, California. Eleanor Berry is an attractive and respectable schoolteacher in this small frontier town just south of Sacramento. But at 22 years old, she is still unmarried and fears becoming an old maid. Generally, women of the Old West were married by the time they were 18. Determined to find a husband, Eleanor scours the personals in the local paper. And one day, an ad catches her attention. It's written by a man who lives 200 miles away in Grass Valley. The ad says that he is a lonesome miner and he's looking for a wife to share his prospects. Eleanor immediately thinks this is it. He's lonely, I'm lonely, and he's wealthy. 
Eleanor eagerly dashes off an inquiry. And to her delight, within a few weeks, she receives a reply. Its author's name is Louis Drybelbus. He was quick to compliment the fact that she was a school teacher and how wonderful she must be with children. And she thought, oh, isn't he just fantastic? Who else would say such things? Over the next three months, they exchanged letter after letter, and Eleanor's affections for the minor bloom. She saw Lewis as being a gentleman who was very strong, but he also had the sensitive side. Then Lewis asks Eleanor for her hand in marriage. Eleanor quickly said yes. Eleanor arranges for the day-long journey to Grass Valley. Upon her arrival, she and Lewis will be wed. And on July 27th, Eleanor packs all her belongings and boards a Concord stagecoach, like the one now on display at the old Sacramento Visitor Center. But hours later, her promising journey soon comes to an abrupt halt. Eleanor and the other passengers come face to face with an armed and masked man. He demands that the driver open the coach's strongbox. This kind of coach would not only be carrying luggage from all the passengers, but it would also be carrying gold. But when the robber tries to pry the box open, it won't budge. Then the desperado prepares to open it with explosives and orders everyone out of the stagecoach. And that's when Eleanor summons the courage to speak up. She says, I am on my way to get married. Please, if you wouldn't mind, just giving me my things. The gunman takes pity on her. And when he hands over her luggage, Eleanor notices something peculiar. He has a jagged scar on the back of his hand. Then he rigs a set of explosives and lights a fuse. The main compartment is blown to smithereens, and the bandits grab the gold and race off. Poor Eleanor. All she's thinking is, now how am I going to get to my wedding? Miraculously, the coach's frame and wheels hold together to complete the journey. Hours later, a weary Eleanor arrives at her fiancé's cottage. But Louis is not there. So she uses the time to prepare for her nuptials. She puts on her wedding gown, and she's very excited about meeting the person that she is finally going to marry. And when Louis comes home, Eleanor is overjoyed. She sees him and thinks, he looks like a sturdy fellow. It looks like I made a good decision. Later, in front of a local parson, Lewis and Eleanor exchange vows and their first kiss. She smiles and he smiles back at her. She's so happy. But as Lewis signs the marriage register, something catches Eleanor's eye. She notices something on the back of his hand. It's a scar. Eleanor quickly realizes that she's seen the mark before. This is the highwayman that she's exchanged vows with. It's him. A horrified Eleanor flees the house. Louis realizes that he has been found out, and he turns himself into the authorities. It's soon discovered that Drybelbus was, in fact, a lonely miner, but he supplemented his income by robbing stagecoaches. For the heartbroken Lewis, the encounter with his bride-to-be on the road to Grass Valley was a random stroke of bad luck. 
he is sentenced to five years in the San Quentin State Prison. But the fate of the lovelorn Eleanor Berry has been lost to history. I'd like to think that she found someone and was able to get married and live happily ever after. But who knows? And today, this trademark stagecoach on display at the old Sacramento Visitor Center stands as a reminder of one woman's rocky road to matrimony and the explosive realities of romance on the frontier. Arcadia, California. This community, nestled at the base of the San Gabriel Mountains, is perhaps best known as the home of Santa Anita Racetrack, one of the most iconic venues in the world of horse racing. But just around the corner, tucked inside the town's public library, is an obscure shrine honoring a different sport. Here, at the baseball reliquary, the bizarre side of America's pastime is illustrated by a life mask of a catcher-turned-spy and a flap of skin belonging to the game's inventor. But there are two small artifacts in this cabinet of curiosities that, at first glance, seem to have nothing to do with the sport. They're black plastic, about seven inches around, but clearly not in its original condition. According to author Dan Epstein, these melted vinyl discs played a central role in the most explosive event in baseball history. It was an evening of absolute pandemonium. Some people even feared for their lives. So what happened to these records? And how did their destruction spark the decline of a cultural phenomenon? July 1979, Illinois. Major League Baseball's Chicago White Sox are in the middle of an epic losing streak. Having won just one of the last 11 games, the team is hovering near last place, and fans are quickly losing interest. They're playing at Comiskey Park. Fits about 40,000 people, maybe more. But the White Sox are drawing about 15,000 people per game. Desperate to sell tickets, the organization turns to their young head of promotions, Mike Veck. He was very outgoing, very in touch with what was happening in youth-oriented movements. Vec racks his brain, trying to conjure up an unconventional gimmick that will fill the bleachers. One day, he finds inspiration while listening to a local disc jockey named Steve Dahl. From his perch at Chicago's WLUP-FM, the outspoken doll preaches to rock and roll purists about the threat posed by a musical fad, disco. By 1979, disco is at the absolute zenith of its popularity. It's sort of infusing every element of popular culture. Many radio stations are abandoning the sound of loud guitars for the smooth beats of disco. But doll is determined to protect the institution of rock and roll and is waging all-out sonic warfare. He'll play a disco record, then all of a sudden yank the needle across the vinyl. The rock and roll kids of Chicago, the ones who were afraid that disco was going to take away their Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd forever, couldn't get enough of his antics. He was their savior. Hoping to lure Dahl's legions of followers to the ballpark, Vec reaches out to the loudmouth DJ. And together, the two hatch an outrageous plan to blow up a large crate of disco records in the middle of Comiskey Park's center field. This idea was called Disco Demolition Night. 
Fans will be charged only 98 cents for admission, as long as they bring a disco record to detonate. Mike Vec felt that it would be an incredible success. On the evening of July 12, 1979, Comiskey Park opens its doors for a doubleheader between the White Sox and the Detroit Tigers. Metalheads and rock fans from all over Chicago pour into the stadium and hand disco records to the ushers. The ballpark sold out. Mike Vec felt vindicated. This is a huge success. By the end of the first game, the stadium is swarming with thousands of teens anxiously awaiting their leader's arrival. And he does not disappoint. Steve Dahl comes out onto the field and just starts yelling into the microphone, Party! And, you know, that gets the kids riled up. The kids are all chanting, Disco sucks. Then, a record-filled crate laced with explosives is wheeled onto the field. It's the moment everyone's been waiting for. Dahl detonated the explosives. All of a sudden, it was like a sonic boom had gone off. Records were launched 250 feet in the air. Two of these records are now on display at the Baseball Reliquary in the Arcadia Public Library. The fans went absolutely wild. This was what they'd come for. This was the total climax of the evening, and this was awesome. But no one could have expected what happens next. A couple of fans decided to jump over the left field and slide into second base. The scene quickly descends into pure chaos. There's a bonfire going in center field. There were fans climbing down from the upper deck using the foul poles to get down. This was complete anarchy. How will this rock and roll riot be stopped? It's July 12th, 1979. The Chicago White Sox have lured thousands of rock and roll fans to their stadium with the promise of destroying disco records in a fiery explosion. But when the raucous revelers overtake the field, it becomes a virtual war zone. So can this unruly mob of rock and rollers be wrangled? After nearly 40 minutes of mayhem, White Sox management is forced to take drastic measures. They called the cops. When Chicago's finest showed up, the field cleared incredibly quickly. Then, game officials survey the damage. The field was in completely unplayable condition. The second game was ruled a forfeit. When the smoke finally clears, 37 fans are arrested, and the White Sox are forced to postpone three games due to the destruction. But perhaps no one feels the impact more than disco demolition night brainchild Mike Veck who leaves the team less than a year later. After this, he would never work in the major leagues again. Though it may not have breathed new life into the faltering White Sox, many argue that Vex's stunt signaled the death knell for an entire musical genre. A lot of people claim that Disco Demolition Night was the event that killed disco. Today, these warped seven-inch records on display at the baseball reliquary serve as a reminder of the night disco struck out. Columbus, Georgia. Due to slow traveling news, Union and Confederate forces fought a heated battle here on April 16, 1865, one week after the surrender of General Robert E. Lee. 
and the legacy of the conflict between the states is remembered at the National Civil War Naval Museum. Its collection includes the hulking remains of the Confederate warship CSS Jackson, a full-scale replica of the USS Monitor's turret, and the hull of the CSS Chattahoochee gunboat. But among these massive relics is one rather small item. The artifact is 34 inches long, 10 inches wide, about 12 inches tall. It's got a small railing around it, a cannon or two, smokestack, and a paddle wheel. According to Executive Director Ken Johnston, the ship upon which this model is based was at the center of a thrilling tale of bravery and perseverance. The ship was used in one of the most breathtaking stories to come out of the Civil War. What role did this vessel play in one man's desperate bid for freedom? March, 1861, South Carolina. 23-year-old slave Robert Smalls is a married father of two who toils on the Charleston Harbor as a sailmaker and ship pilot. Robert had a very keen knowledge of how Charleston Harbor is laid out, where the channels were. Smalls dreams of a life of freedom for his family. But he and his wife are owned by separate masters, making their future together far from secure. He knew that his wife could be sold away at any time if the master so desired. He had to come up with a plan of some sort. Then, in 1861, the Civil War erupts. The conflict quickly descends upon Charleston when the Union Navy sets up a blockade outside the harbor. With the Confederacy desperately in need of experienced pilots, Smalls is assigned to be the wheelman of a military transport ship named the CSS Planter. And it's aboard this vessel with his crew of fellow slaves that Smalls is struck by an idea. He knows that together they have the skills themselves to take that ship wherever they want to. He reckons that if he can pilot the planter directly to the blockade, he and his crew can surrender to the Union Navy. But doing so means sailing past heavily armed Confederate installations. Robert Smalls knows that his plan is risky. You have four massive fortifications with hundreds of guns. And that's not the only danger. The planter is under constant guard by three Confederate sailors. Robert knew there was a very real chance that this might not work. Smalls waits for a window of opportunity to set his plan into motion. And finally, on May 12, 1862, he spots an opening. The three white officers aboard the planter decided to go into town, and they left orders to Robert and the rest of the crew to stay on board the ship. The minute the men are alone, they seize control of the planter and secretly bring their families aboard. And to keep his identity hidden from anyone who might spy him from shore, Smalls changes into the uniform of the captain. So 3 a.m., they slowly ease the planter away from the wharf. As they glide into the darkness, the men make a pact. If caught, they would blow the ship up and die as martyrs to freedom rather than return as slaves. Smalls slowly sails east through the harbor to the first fortification. Then, the studied seaman acts. He gives the proper steam signal so they'll let him pass. And through the darkness, he hears the return signal clearing him to pass. With the pre-dawn conditions, the darkness, the gloom, the soldiers in each forty passed, 
weren't aware that it was a black man piloting the ship. But three miles into the journey, the planter approaches the biggest barricade of all, the massive Fort Sumter. Some of the other crew members asked Smalls to steer wide and to go faster, but Robert refused because he knew that would draw attention. Smalls steadies the planter and enters the shadows of the fort. This is the instant where everything can come undone if they're discovered. The renegade captain is within feet of Fort Sumter. Smalls gives his signal and waits nervously for a response. Then he hears a voice call out. One of the guards shouts out, pass the planter, blow the hell out of the Yankees or bring one of them back. Smalls responds and pilots the planter right past Fort Sumter and out of the harbor. And as they approach the Union Naval blockade, he gives the men one final order. They hoist a white flag instead of the Confederate flag that they've had to fly to get out of the harbor. When a Union captain boards the planter, he's amazed to find the ship full of escaped slaves. And he welcomes them to the north. Robert Smalls and his crew and his family have taken one of the greatest risks anyone could make. They're relieved, they're euphoric. Robert Smalls eventually joins the Union cause, becoming the first African-American to captain a ship in the U.S. Navy. In a bit of poetic justice, he takes command of the very ship he made his escape in, the Planter. And today, this model of that very ship on display in a traveling exhibition at the National Civil War Naval Museum, sits as a symbol of Robert Small's audacious break for freedom. Fraser, Colorado. The annual mean temperature of this tiny Rocky Mountain town is a frosty 32 and a half degrees Fahrenheit, making it one of the country's coldest cities. The intrepid settlers who first put down roots in this snowy valley are celebrated here at the Cousins Ranch Museum. Its collection includes an 1870s coach, a pioneer's diary, and mail pouches from the region's first post office. But amidst these artifacts from everyday residents sits a bulging leather item that belonged to Fraser's most famous citizen. It's a rectangular bag dark in color, well-worn, and inside of this bag are a number of tools. According to librarian Kathy Naples, the owner of this satchel came to Fraser in a desperate bid for survival. This was a woman who overcame amazing odds. To whom did this case belong? And what hardships did she endure to call it her own? In 1897, the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. 23-year-old medical student Susan Anderson is in a class of her own. In an era when most women are barred from college, Susan is third in her program and a star intern at the campus hospital. She worked nights caring for patients and then would go to class during the day. But midway through her final year, it seems the ambitious student's schedule is catching up with her she begins experiencing dizzy spells, fevers, and a chronic cough. And after weeks of suffering, a perplexed Susan seeks the advice of an instructor. 
he performs some tests and then delivers some crushing news. This medical professor told her she had contracted a touch of tuberculosis from one of the patients. Tuberculosis is the country's leading cause of death. Yet the professor suggests there may be some hope. He tells Susan that the disease's symptoms have been known to fade in arid high-altitude climates like those out west. So that spring, upon graduating from medical school, Susan decides to move to Colorado and heads to the gold rush city of Cripple Creek. The change in atmosphere proves as beneficial as she'd hoped, and her symptoms soon fade. Then the young doctor eagerly sets up a practice of her own. But she soon encounters another challenge. She discovered that a woman physician in a rough and humble town like Cripple Creek would face significant bias. Most men refuse to be cared for by a female physician. Driven by her passion for medicine, Susan doggedly persists. But after 10 years, she is struggling to eke out a living. Then she's dealt another crushing blow when her tuberculosis resurfaces. She all of a sudden finds herself unable to work at all. Recalling her instructor's earlier advice, Susan makes a difficult decision. She would have to go to a higher and drier climate. A distraught Susan boards a train for Fraser, Colorado, a provincial Rocky Mountain outpost some 8,500 feet above sea level. It seems the sickly physician's professional dreams are dashed. Susan settles into a remote shack and focuses her energies on recovery. For the first few months, all she did was rest. By the time spring arrives, she is ready to make a fresh start in her new community, but not as a doctor. It was very frightful for her to think that discrimination could come back. Instead, she decides to keep her medical training a secret and takes a job as a clerk in the Fraser General Store. But one morning, fate forces Susan to confront her true calling. In came a gentleman asking if there wasn't a doctor around. The man said, can you come and help Dave? He's got caught up in some barbed wire and he's, he's hurt bad. Susan worries that revealing she's a doctor will damage her standing in the community. But she knows that if she does nothing, Dave might die. So she fetches her medical bag, the very one on display at the Cousins Ranch Museum, and offers to help. Yet nothing can prepare her for the shock of seeing her patient for the first time. Dave was the man's horse. But when she examines the injury, the surprise quickly morphs into concern. The horse had wounds that went deep into his muscles. Susan's medical instincts kick in, and she expertly cleans and stitches the bloody gashes. It was perfect bedside or horse-side manner. The physician's impromptu surgery is a complete success. And when word of her medical skills circulates through the small community, the people of Fraser beat down her door seeking advice and treatment. People would accept her for what she was and recognize the value of the education and experience that she brought to them. As the years pass, the physician earns the affectionate nickname Doc Susie, as well as the deep respect of her patients. She works well into her 80s, and the passion she brings to her practice never wavers. 
Today, this medical bag at the Cousins Ranch Museum stands as a tribute to a woman who triumphed over discrimination and disease to become the caretaker of her community. For more than 140 years, the small town of Corning, New York, has been home to one of the world's largest manufacturers of glass products. And one institution here is dedicated to this signature industry, the Corning Museum of Glass. Its dazzling collection includes ancient Egyptian jars, a chandelier that once adorned an Indian palace, and glass slippers worn in a film production of Cinderella. But among these bright and beautiful items is one object with a darker hue. This artifact is about three inches high. It's made of beautiful cobalt blue glass, and blown in the glass is the name and logo of the substance that it contained. This vessel once held a common remedy. But according to author Harold Schechter, it is linked to an event that was far from curative. It was used in a diabolical scheme, born out of jealousy and revenge. What role did a simple blue bottle play in a sinister and devious plot? December, 1898, New York. With interest in athletics at an all-time high, amateur sporting clubs are popping up all over the city. These associations allow members to engage in friendly but fierce matchups. The kinds of competitions that these athletic clubs had with each other were the equivalent now of the rivalries between professional sports teams. And one of New York's most successful organizations is the Knickerbocker Athletic Club, located on the Tony Upper East Side. The club is under the leadership of a newly appointed physical director named Harry Cornish. Harry Cornish was a big, burly, bull-necked man with an aggressive swagger, somebody who didn't take guff from anybody. The 35-year-old is known as a brash personality with a penchant for womanizing, but his winning record speaks for itself. Cornish led the Knickerbocker Athletic Club to various kinds of victories. On Christmas Eve, Cornish checks his mailbox at the club and discovers an unexpected package. Inside is a small bottle of bromo seltzer, Bromo seltzer was a very, very popular remedy at the time for headaches and indigestion. Oddly, the package bears no return address. Harry assumed it was a prank from one of his drinking buddies, as if to say, I know you're going to need this after your holiday hangover. Four days later, Cornish's landlady comes by his door in search of help. She had woken up with a terrible headache and asked Harry if he had anything that might help cure it. Recalling his recent gift, Cornish retrieves the bromo seltzer, mixes the remedy with water, and hands it to his neighbor. She took a sip, and she said, this doesn't taste very good. And Harry basically said, well, it's not supposed to taste good, it's medicine. But when her discomfort persists, the landlady heads for the bathroom. Then, moments later, Cornish hears a piercing scream. He broke into the bathroom and all of a sudden, she collapsed to the floor. A panicked Cornish summons a doctor, but by the time he arrives, it's too late. The woman is dead. Cornish tells the doctor that the last thing the woman consumed was a simple dose of bromo seltzer. When the physician samples the concoction, 
he detects something suspicious. He immediately tasted bitter almonds and knew that there was cyanide in the bromo seltzer. She had been poisoned. And that's when Cornish is hit with a disturbing realization. This lethal gift was intended for him. Cornish explains that he has no idea who sent him the poisonous present. With little to go on, investigators turn to one of the only pieces of physical evidence available, the handwritten package in which the bottle was delivered. Then they quickly distribute copies of the handwriting to the press. The newspapers published the handwritten address that appeared on the package in the hope that somebody might be able to identify the handwriting. Just two days later, police receive a promising lead. A man claims the handwriting belongs to someone named Roland Molyneux, who just happens to be a former member of the Knickerbocker Club. And when police question Molyneux, they learn his profession affords him unique access to a wide range of poisons, including cyanide. Roland worked for a paint company in Newark, New Jersey. He was responsible for making up the colors of the paint and had his own private chemical lab. But why would Molyneux target the successful athletic director? It seems that the answer is jealousy. Molyneux had been one of the Knickerbocker Club's stars, but that changed when the brash Cornish was hired. Roland felt that he had been pushed out of the spotlight. And while most members excused Cornish's often lewd behavior, Molyneux refused to look the other way. Roland was offended that Harry was supposedly not living up to the standards of the Knickerbocker Athletic Club by going out drinking and patronizing houses of ill repute. Roland's dislike of Harry Cornish quickly turned into an obsession. Molyneux is swiftly arrested, and on February 11, 1900, he is found guilty of murder. Today, this bromo seltzer bottle at the Corning Museum of Glass remains a symbol of one man's toxic desire to best his bitter rival. As a state representative and U.S. congressman, Abraham Lincoln called Springfield, Illinois, home. So it's no surprise that this capital city is the site of the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. This 200,000-square-foot institution is packed with life-size dioramas and video depictions of how the great emancipator united the nation. But tucked away in the archives is a small item from a little-known episode that nearly tore the country apart. It's a cotton rag stationery, which has yellowed a little bit over time, and it's roughly 8 by 10 inches. According to historian Daniel Stowell, these handwritten pages relate to a shocking tale of deception, treachery, and greed. It was an act of treason that shocked and terrified many people. To what does this letter pertain? And how does it link a respected president to a scoundrel? May 18th, 1864, New York City. The Civil War is in its third bloody year, and citizens of this metropolis are praying for a quick end to the conflict. But on this morning, two metropolitan dailies, the Journal of Commerce and the New York World, run a story that dashes those hopes. 
The papers declare that President Abraham Lincoln has issued a proclamation ordering the conscription of 400,000 additional soldiers. This was huge news because it gave every indication that the war is not over and will continue on into a fourth year and perhaps beyond. The reports send shockwaves across the North and stock prices begin to plummet. But many merchants, politicians, and even Civil War generals find the story difficult to believe. Official White House proclamations are typically front-page news across the nation, but this report was only printed in two local papers. Soon, a distrustful and angry mob storms the journal's headquarters. The crowd was confused, and they wanted answers. The journal's editors explain the scoop came straight from a highly trusted source, the Associated Press. The Associated Press would receive the news by telegraph and then distribute it off to the various newspapers by courier so that they could be placed in the morning's papers. But the AP adamantly denies sending the story to either of the papers. And soon, the White House states it issued no such proclamation. Then, a phalanx of Union troops descend upon the offices of the journal. The war literally comes in their front door. Armed soldiers come in and say, you publish this proclamation, by order of the president, you're being shut down. The editors are accused by the White House of falsifying their reports for political gain, an action that carries a serious charge, treason. They weren't frightened because the punishment for treason would have been death. As the editors are arrested and dragged off to prison, they swear they aren't behind the incendiary story. In order to prove their innocence, the editors offer a $1,000 reward for the discovery of the person who planted the false edict. And three days later, a man admits that he was hired to deliver a notice to area papers by someone named Joseph Howard. Joseph Howard was a city editor for the Brooklyn Eagle, another New York City newspaper. Howard is arrested. Under questioning, he admits to distributing the bogus dispatch to seven New York papers under the guise that it hailed from the Associated Press. While many of the dailies questioned the report's veracity, the journal and the world saw it fit to print. But the question remains, why would Howard use their papers to spread this false information? It turns out the simple answer was greed. When the devastating announcement was published, stock prices tumbled, costing many their fortunes. But one commodity gained tremendous value, gold. The reason gold rises when the stock market falls is that people see gold as a safe investment, regardless of the state of affairs in the country. Howard admitted that he had purchased a large amount of gold the day before he issued this bogus proclamation. When gold values climbed, Howard cashed in. The duplicitous Joseph Howard is charged with treason and confined to a military prison. And the editors of the World and Journal are set free. But the story doesn't end there. In August, the president writes a surprising letter, now part of the collection of the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. It orders the immediate release of Joseph Howard. Lincoln wrote, let Howard, imprisoned in regard to the bogus proclamation, be discharged. But why would the president free a man convicted of treason? Today, some historians believe Howard got off easy because his falsehood 
soon became true. In the summer of 1864, Lincoln called for 500,000 additional troops. This time, it was not a bogus proclamation. Scholars theorize Lincoln commuted Howard's sentence to avoid appearing hypocritical for his decision to escalate the war. And today, at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum, this missive stands as a reminder of the strange connection between a scheming publisher and a powerful president. From a disco explosion to an escape by sea, a poisonous plot to a bogus proclamation. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.